The internet is a layer cake of technologies and protocols. At a fundamental level, the internet runs on the TCPIP protocol. It's a packet-based system. When your browser requests a file from a web server or an MP3 file from a podcast feed, that server chomps up the file into tiny pieces known as packets and puts them on the network labeled with your machine's address as the destination. That system obviously works incredibly well for receiving a file from a web server, and if some of the packets arrive out of order, that's not a problem. If one is lost, it can be sent again. There are no guarantees in a packet-based system. No direct connection. If a flood of new packets show up, the system can slow down and you may experience a lag in response time. This can be annoying when visiting a blog that is slow to load, but it's not really a ruined experience. Streaming video, on the other hand, does not degrade elegantly in this situation. No consumer wants to have the experience interrupted with a spinning wheel. Traffic can be spiky and unpredictable, especially around live events. All this is to say the stakes are high for building a scalable, efficient streaming video solution. Amit Mishra is a member of the team at Fox, which is responsible for building platform to live stream content across the Fox properties. In this episode, we discuss some of the technical milestones in delivering this platform and why Golang was the right choice. Amit, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. So can you tell me a little bit about where your career journey in software began? Yeah, sure. I have been in software industry almost for 17 plus years. And most of my career has been into media and entertainment industry. I have been working on mostly, you know, backend space for various clients, you know, and playback kind of scenarios. What's some of the technology that uh, you've worked with throughout your career? Yeah, some of the technology stack I have been working on, you know, I started my career as a Java developer. From there, I continued on working on the, those things like almost a decade, you know, and then slowly I moved into a PHP space a little bit because of requirements from the product point of view. Then we again, I again went back to Java because that was my kind of like original love. And then uh, I moved to Golang on base space, you know. And since then, I never went back to any other technology space. So it sounds like you had some success migrating the from Java and Node.js to Golang. That's a path other technology groups might be thinking of following. Is it always the case that you think someone uh, working in Java and or Node.js should probably migrate to Golang? To be honest, no. The choices should depend on what exactly you need. So it's around 2016, I think, actually 2015, I would say, you know, we were looking to rewrite a couple of things in our platform. And we used to be a big Java shop. And at that time, we had recently migrated everything to PHP-based system. But then we started having, you know, lots of performance issues. And then quickly, we also migrated so many things to Node.js-based system. And then we had the similar kind of issues. Then one of our colleagues had a very good experience with Golang. And then he kind of suggested that as a, you know, to POC. And then we thought, okay, let's try this out also, right? And this is where we kind of like started writing like a small POC and which was greatly received by all the devs, especially most of them coming back from Java and Node.js background, but they all loved on the simplicity of Colang. And me also as a software engineer loved that um, whole idea of simplicity. So we kind of stick around it and then we kind of like move forward with that idea at the organization level. So, yeah, my answer would be like, choose based on what you need. And for all use cases, I think Golang was the choice most of the time. 
Well, to hear that you have one developer working in maybe Java showing appreciation for another language is promising. A lot of people are dogmatic in that regard. But at face value, it seems like maybe they just appreciate the syntax or the data structures or the design of the code, something like that, the elegance of how to write it. But it seems to me there's something more you're looking for in a migration to Golang. What are some of the features beyond the ones that a developer would appreciate that will motivate the move? Yeah, so as a developer, when I say simplicity, like simplicity, not only for the syntax, also the speed of developing your software itself. So one of the things we found with Golang was like, or speed to deliver the software increased like 100 times. Whenever we used to write a Node.js-based services and or the Java-based services, the development time for those used to be like, let's say for a simple service, used to be like more than one sprint or two weeks. But with Golang, that simplified a lot and that whole thing went down to two to three days, you know? And that was exact same thing, exact same business logic, but the kind of speed Golang provided in the development process was incredible. And not only that, like the performance itself, the Golang itself was like so lightweight, you know, without doing lots of tuning at the language level, we were able to get the kind of performance we wanted to have by default, which was like, you know, great sell for us. Because in this case, without having a very lots of experience in a particular language, we were still able to build a performant software. So that was the great thing to do. And that is what like kind of started giving us the confidence in this direction. That speed up is obviously hugely appealing. I'm not sure if I have the core insight yet. What really is the root cause of such a increase in delivery time? Yeah, so this is not against any language, just just a disclaimer, <laughs> right? And since I have been a Java developer almost more than 12 years, you know, so I really appreciate Java as a language or technology, and I still code on Java. But one of the problems with Java or even the Node.js is like it, these kind of things comes with lots of baggage, right, surrounding their ecosystem. And because of that, onboarding process for a particular engineer becomes very hard, right? Similarly, whenever you are writing a program itself, compiling itself is very, very slow, you know, and this is where like you get stuck into that loop where you are debugging particular issue, but because of the language framework, you are stuck in those like couple of hours, right? So these small, small things counts wherever in Golang, these things are very simplified, right? Like your syntax are so simple that uh, you don't need to rely on end-to-end deployment in order to, you know, find any things. Right. Inherently, whenever you are writing any program in Golang and kind of like building it and running it, that process itself takes a couple of seconds compared to Java or Node.js where it takes like a couple of, you know, minutes. Right. So those small, small things counts a lot during a development process itself. So that's one of the thing. Another thing was like the performance point of view, like I, I wouldn't bring up like we ran like little like three simple POC. We did a competitive study with Java. We wrote a similar service in Java, we wrote the similar service in Node.js, and we wrote the similar service in Golang. That was our, you know, one of our account service. And when we ran the load test, we found like Golang service was like much more faster than Java. And this is coming from like the devs who did not have any experience on Golang. You know, it was just simple modification, simple translation from one language to another language without doing, and all the three platforms were running on simple default settings, no tuning there. So that's another thing which came into that. And then we just rolled with that in production and it just saved us so much cost and energy 
in that direction. So I have, let's just go ahead and label it a rumor because I've only heard this from uh, one person, but they had done some work in Go and had some very early success. And their complaint was that it wasn't uh, a rich ecosystem of libraries. So if they needed some connection to this or that, they might have to write it themselves. What was your experience like? So that was definitely an issue for us when we started, honestly. But it was not a blocker because kind of things we wanted to have those were already part of the ecosystem. One of the things we wanted to do using Golang was we wanted to move towards a microservices kind of architecture. In Node.js, we already had those kind of things, by the way. All our services were, microservices were written in Node.js and in Java, it, those were written through the Spring Boot. So when you come from Java Spring Boot kind of ecosystem and suddenly run on write these services in Golang, then you are definitely going to miss those features. Like there are like production ready endpoints uh, in Spring Boot. You don't need to worry about for health checks and all those things. Those are already part of the ecosystem. But in Golang, you got to write those or all those things on your own. But writing those things are so simple. It's a kind of accepted, I would say, drawback in a sense because it you get out of it so much that all those kind of things you don't miss end of the day. So that's how our experience was. Like we also missed a couple of things, you know, in Golang. But then we slowly moved and then we opted in for uh, like various libraries. And uh, honestly, Go community is so strong and they're so helpful. I got so much help from the community uh, whenever I we had any issue. So that kind of like simplified lots of things for us. I will give an example of Circuit Breaker. Circuit Breaker already has had a library, which we just opted in and then it just went for us. It worked for us. There are lots of other simple examples, which we got help from the Golang as a community. Well, in comparison to a framework like Spring and the whole Spring ecosystem, there's a big maturity there. So you get a lot of things. It occurs to maybe that sort of is a, a monolith framework and maybe all those advantages don't pay equity in a microservice world. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with you. Spring itself is a like very old framework and then Spring Boot kind of like more of the microservice towards tuned framework, right? So it has lots of features. So as a dev, you get lots of things out of it, but think about it like it comes with lots of its own baggage, right? Because you have so many packages, so many jars as part of this whole ecosystem, which takes time to compile and, you know, make it build ready or production ready service. But in case of Golang, all those things are not available, but right those things are so simple that you don't miss those things and the thing is that you can write those things in the way you like it you don't have to rely on mercy of a particular framework you have to stick with those kind of things even though you don't want those so that's one of the thing like go kind of provided us the opportunity to choose and go based on what we needed and that was one of the reason like when we opted in for the golang based software one of the reason like all, most of the devs started asking us like hey what are the framework we are going to use? Java has a Spring Boot, right? They have already built for writing all these service layers. When Golang, what kind of framework we are going to use? And we consciously chose to write our own framework internally because we kind of like analyzed or researched lots of frameworks available using Golang to write the services. But those had so many different features which we never needed. And those also had the similar kind of issues which Java might introduce into a system. So we kind of like rewrote everything which we needed at that point of time. And then we continued it. Like, okay, at that point of time, we just needed to write a simple REST endpoint. We did not want it to have any kind of other functionality as part of that 
whole thing. So we just wrote simple handler for that, you know, <laughs> supported by some kind of data store, right? I don't need to think about supporting 10 different data store as part of my service, right? It should have just one support for one data store. So just run with that, right? Why should it include 10 different data stores or libraries unnecessarily? Similarly, like I would say circuit breaker, as I said, right? In a couple of services, we did not need any circuit breaker functionality. Then why the service should have those kind of dependency and at compile time, right? So we had the opportunity to basically not to go with those and just rely on the default Golang-based feature to write those kind of things. Well, in my experience, any group that's doing a serious Java project at scale is eventually going to have some challenge related to the JVM doing garbage collection. You know, it's going to do that full pause, scan, uh, all that, and require some fine-tuning. Does that get better, worse, or the same in a migration to Go? It becomes much better in case of Go, honestly, because I remember struggling with Java to come up with those settings all the time and find that sweet spot. But once you find that sweet spot, you will not have any issue. But reaching to till that state is a big thing from the product point of view. But in Golang, we never had to do those kind of things. Like we just ran with whatever came out of box. Slowly, we learned more things. If we were able to write a good Go program, it was already memory optimized. We did not have to worry about any of the garbage collection kind of issues in this case. Interestingly, recently we had an issue, but then later it was found that it was our code. It was not a language problem. It was our code which had these excessive memory utilization problems. And Golang provided us the way to optimize those. And then we went back to a normal situation. Well, these all seem like good indicators that Go is a useful tool for your team to be at leveraging, but you're not going to just do a full rewrite of the whole system. How do you look for the right opportunities to introduce a rewrite? That's a very interesting question because this is what we have been doing in last year or so. So yeah, I mean, most of our platform was either on Java or the Node.js. Like I would say like since we were migrating from Java to Node.js, so most of our platform was in Node.js, right? But then when we started having issue with Node.js, then we made a conscious choice to migrate to Golang. But it was not a you know easy task for us. So the kind of approach we started following was like, you know, implementing a simple Go proxy on top of each of these services. And honestly, like just writing the proxy service on top of existing uh, Node.js legacy service gave us the performance boost. And that we don't know how did it happen. Honestly, like we were also amazed, like why this is happening, right? How come... Go is able to optimize these things, which is just take same request and passing the response from the underlying services. But the way Go was able to manage the resources, that was incredible. So that's what we did. Like, like we did it in a couple of stages, to be honest, right? Like, let's say we had a service which we wanted to migrate. We just started writing the micro, like simple proxy on top of it. Once we had the Golang-based proxy in the background, we started basically swapping small, small component with Golang and started doing the comparative testing. And once we got that confidence based on our comparative testing, we kind of like went through and removed the whole proxy layer because now our whole service was already on Golang and we were able to publish it out. But just swapping the whole service in one shot from legacy to, you know, a new microservice is not doable or is not practical just because the kind of space I work on, like, you know, live streaming space, it's not possible. We have the events every week, right? So kind of risk is very high if we do those kind of experiment at that moment. What are some of the challenges in doing live streaming? Yeah, so one of the biggest challenges in live streaming is like, 
it's life. You do not get the second chance. Once you have that moment passed, then that's it. You are done. You know, like you lost, like if something goes wrong during live streaming, then you already lost your users. And not only you lost those users for that moment, it might impact your image also where you lost that user forever. So that's a very kind of like unique challenge to handle. And other challenges are like, you know, the business related challenges where you got to deal with the number of concurrent users dynamically because you cannot predict that how many users are going to join at that moment when the game or a particular event is happening on, right? You can predict a little bit, but it's honestly, it's never correct, right? There is always <laughs> slight chances where on a particular uh, game, there is moment happened when everyone got interested and then suddenly you have the flood of traffic which you cannot control so managing those kind of expectation at that moment is very difficult and this is where like most of our challenges comes into the picture so in that regard i mean you could i guess fall back on what the cloud offers natively there are some you know scalability solutions built into all the major services but i'm not sure they're built for every single use case where do you guys fall with that do you lean into a cloud provider or do you have to do something custom we use AWS as our cloud provider here, and we depend on them for lots of things. Like, But for a couple of things, we cannot rely on. Like, Because whenever there is any live streaming going on, right, and if there is a flood of traffic coming in, then depending on your system might not auto-scale fast enough in order to support it. For those kind of things, we came up with our own ideas, you know, like implementing our own caching kind of system and then implementing some kind of like fail forward scenarios at our end, those kind of things like we had to come up with our own things. So yes, we depend on uh, lots of things on AWS, but at the same time, we had to come up with our own ways <laughs> to handle these kind of things. What's unique about your situation that maybe couldn't be covered in the standard cases that Amazon had prepared for? Yeah, I mean, one of the scenario I would say, like, let's say app crash kind of scenario, like, let's say you have some kind of live event going on, let's say for Super Bowl, right? You have all the users logged in and suddenly your app crash. Of course, your app should not crash, but it, things happens. And when this happens, like all these users are going to retry the stream. And as a an user, we are going to click or retry multiple times. And I don't even know, like, as a user, how many times I'm going to click until my stream is going to load because it's a, such an important game. I want to watch it at any cost, right? <laughs> Before I can try another provider. So in this case, you can think about, like, amount of traffic of one user might be sending, unexpected traffic. So now when you multiply this traffic between millions of concurrent users, then this becomes totally unmanageable traffic. Right. So for this kind of scenario, we had to come up with an innovative way of like implementing various patterns, like single flight kind of pattern or throttling at some level of the service level. Right. Or if uh, things are going out of control, then how do we ensure that those are not client initiated retried? Those all those retried are controlled by us, you know, not by <laughs> clients. Right. So those kind of things we kind of like came up with where AWS couldn't help us, but we had to uh, implement on our own. So it makes total sense to me that you cannot predict these spikes in traffic. They're, you know, random noise in many ways, unexpected things. But is it so hard that it's not worth trying? Is there any ML or anything going on in the background trying to give you a prediction that's useful? 
Yeah, like we have those analytics always running in, right? And we always have those numbers. And based on those numbers, we are ready with event. Like we always scale in advance so that expected amount of the traffic can be handled. But these things can happen internally also, right? Like where one of your service for some reason, you know, is not performing the way you were expecting due to some, some unexpected reason. And that can basically create pressure on other microservices. So those can be your internal reason, but it's still unmanageable. So even though we had auto-scaled our system enough in advance, but still you have those kind of things happen. But since those are internal issues, it doesn't mean that it should ruin your client experience or user's experience, right? Because we got to have our stream or the things playing without any problem. So those are a couple of things like we have to keep in mind whenever we are like implementing these things. It seems like there's more than one, for lack of a better phrase, plan of attack you can take here. There's maybe caching you could do. There's having a pool of, you know, warm servers to pick up as you need them without cold start. Maybe there's other techniques I'm not aware of. Is there one clear winning strategy you're chasing or are all these things on the agenda? Most of the time we rely on caching. But at the same time, it's a combination of different, different strategy based on the traffic or dynamic nature of the event we are expecting. So let's say there is an event like, I would give an example of Super Bowl itself, right? During Super Bowl, our goal is to have this uninterrupted experience to users at any cost. Uh, during Super Bowl kind of scenario, like sometime, your event is so important that other features kind of like, you know, might be a little bit less important at that moment, right? Because your streaming with Super Bowl is more important. For those kind of scenario, we have our own uh, DEFCON mode kind of uh, implementation where like we run on normal mode all the time, right? But if let's say if there's an infrastructure failure or anything happened, at that moment time, how do we ensure that we can still serve the Super Bowl or the event itself? For that, we have like something called like DEFCON 0, where we can just feature flag it and it just basically redirects our traffic to a different region itself and we can run from there. And even if that reason also, that let's say different reason also goes down, then we have the, our internal failure scenario implemented in this case, where we can also rely on some different kind of infrastructure where we can start serving the stream from. So that's one of the thing like for like most important event we do. Other than that, as I said, like we rely on mostly like, you know, caching and I would say, you know, fail forward kind of scenarios we have implemented. It makes total sense to me that you would have strong operational procedures like what you described. You know, this happens, you have pre-planned the execution of what to do because these are such important events that you shouldn't be thinking on your feet, right? You need to have a pre-calculated solution almost. With that in mind, or maybe I'm curious if you see it a different way, but I guess my question was going to be, do you have to run drills or war games around this kind of thing? Because you don't want to learn during an actual emergency. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like before any big event, we have months of drills running. In fact, like for 2023 Super Bowl, we have already started preparing for. So each and every big event before that, we basically prepare our mock events where we run these drills and we on purpose bring down certain part of our infrastructure and see how we are behaving 
can we still serve the steam or not so there are lots of things goes in background in order to deliver the final version of the event itself so yes i agree i totally agree with you in this case like yes we do have like lots of drills uh, happens over the period of time and those things the frequency of these things increases we are more closer to the events to be honest you know but the way the things are organized we have very little chance to react also so this is where like we have to be ready in uh, very much advance could we talk a little bit about the playback platform? I don't know that listeners will be aware of it. Perhaps you could start with what the solution does. Yeah, so basically our playback platform, like recently we wrote that whole platform into Golang. And this playback platform is nothing but simply like how do we ensure that we deliver the end-to-end playback experience to the users. So as part of this platform, you basically deliver the streaming playback URL. Of course, you have to deliver some kind of analytics from the clients. And also the most important piece is like uh, add related metadata because whenever there is any live streaming going on, there are ad markers, right? Based on those ad markers, you want to deliver the right ad to the user. And during that point of time, since those markers are so dynamic in nature, going back to the backend in a dynamic manner uh, at the same time and getting the result and serving the right ad becomes very crucial, especially from the revenue point of view. So that's one of the critical thing it does. Apart from that, playback platform also handles like various challenges. The challenges like game extension, because any live event, all the programs have some schedule. So that's how we also do that here in, in our case. Like we have everything scheduled in advance. But in case of live event, if the game goes over time, your schedule kind of disturbs. In this case, you have to basically manually, from the content operator point of view, go back and reschedule everything and then uh, just to extend for a couple of minutes. And also, you don't know how long that game will be extended. Like You can predict, okay, it will be 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes. But you cannot predict exact moment, okay, this is when this is going to end and this is when my next program boundary should restart, right? So coming up with that kind of prediction and then extending those kind of events right at the moment is riskier also from the digital streaming point of view because in your backend, it resets lots of things. You cannot rely on the caching for these kind of scenarios because it's going to create thundering hard kind of problems, right? So this is one of the main feature like our playback platform needs to support in general other than that like a standard expectation from any platform where it should be scalable <laughs> to you know millions of concurrent users and it should be resilient enough and fault tolerant enough so that we can support things the way they should be will any stream processing system at some point has to manage the debate do we want to run with batch mode calculations or be totally event driven or some sort of hybrid where do you fall on system design it's kind of a hybrid, I would say. So what we do, like most of our contents are like in live streaming, as I said, like dynamic, but we can still calculate a couple of things in advance. When I say advance, not like an advanced couple of hours before, but at least a couple of minutes before. And this is where we use, you know, like I would give an example of latency, right? Whenever any broadcast event is going on. So there will be some latency from broadcast to digital streaming, right? And that is the thing we kind of like use in our benefit. There is latency. So like before the streaming is going to propagate into different clients, before that itself, we we get all those requests into our system. And that kind of like helps us to cache the data. So we use that drawback in our benefit in order to kind of like serve the dynamic traffic at scale. Not only that, like we also 
have done some analysis like that okay these kind of metadata are going to be available in advance so we are kind of ready with those and these kind of like metadata are not going to be available so how do we basically create those buckets for dynamic data so that even in case of failure it impacts us very less from the feature point of view without impacting the streaming it seems to me you have a tremendous potential to generate volumes of data even greater than what you're transmitting. If you really wanted to have full-grain tracking of events and things, you can't possibly store everything. How do you approach what to keep, what to throw away, what to aggregate, and that sort of thing? From data point of view, we try to collect as much as data we could. And honestly, like for this particular playback framework, we do not store any data at our end like it's all read only from our end so it's all from the quest like what clients are requesting from but being ready for that kind of data that response is kind of tricky because each request is basically a unique client request because as a user when you come to a stream you are a unique user you will have your own location on uh, dma and own ip addresses and based on that what kind of stream we are going to serve is a different thing and these things becomes more complicated when the subscription scenario comes to in the picture because as a user you may or may not have the uh, subscription or the entitlements to play a particular event so these things becomes more dynamic in this nature but to answer your question from the data collection point of view we send lots of data we collect lots of data into our data analytics portion but from the playback api point of view we kind of ignore those requests data collection requests so the traffic you're handling, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's it's really the video data or maybe compressed video data that you're shipping to viewers. Is that right? Yes, right. Yeah. So there's some, I think watchers will be uh, forgiving within a few seconds, right? I wouldn't even know if my neighbor was getting the Super Bowl three seconds. You know, maybe I'd know that because somebody cheered or something. But if I was a minute lagged, I'd probably be upset. You have a certain amount of wiggle room there, uh, I guess, before users become upset. Is that something you optimize towards? Yeah, definitely. That's one of the like our main focus is like how do we reduce that latency between clients and even from the broadcasting point of view. Recently, we have been working on the latest features where this latency is going to decrease a lot. Like I think current latency is like around 30 seconds, right? 30 to 40 seconds. But once we release this new optimization, we are expecting our latency to be decreased to maybe 10 to 15 seconds. That is a big improvement industry-wise. And we are all kind of like very excited about it. But definitely, uh, you are absolutely right. You know, even in testing or while supporting these events, we whenever we are playing these events on different clients, we can definitely see that kind of lag where, you know, one of the... Uh, Sari team, they are watching the event at point of time and they suddenly cheers and we are like in another room. What happened there? We don't know. And after a few seconds, we know, oh, wow, this <laughs> there's something happened in the game <laughs> and we just came to know about it, right? So those things, there, there are always scenarios where these kind of things happens and our goal is to reduce that kind of latency as much as we can. So I definitely see your motivation to do that, but it seems like some of it's out of your control. Like you, you send the packets off from your servers, eventually they go onto the backbone and find their way onto my home internet provider to get to me. You don't own every hop. How can you account for that? We cannot control uh, those parts. Like the couple of things which we do at the player level itself, you know, where we can help with the bandwidth issues or we basically deliver the right package size or the bitrate size, bitrate based on the internet speed. But other than that, you know, we have not done that much on that space, honestly. Most of the optimization are at the player level where we can opt in for. 
What are some of the open challenges you guys are working on now? One of the biggest challenges, as I said, we are working towards like preparing for the next Super Bowl, which is like prepping for at least, you know, five times of the traffic compared to this year. And since we are rewriting all those things into Golang, right? So we, we have learned uh, lots of things on the way. couple of things we have learned that, okay, architecturally, we have the challenges. And uh, how do we address on those things? One of the things, as I explained you previously, was like, you know, it still serve millions of concurrent users. How do we aggregate or serve the API responses, which are user agnostic or the platform agnostic? Because currently everything is so unique, caching those things becomes much harder. And because of that, your scaling capabilities are limited. So in order to handle those, we are looking forward for ways to implement our APIs in such a manner, which are client entitlement agnostic. That's a pretty interesting challenge. But once we can serve the responses, which are client agnostic and user agnostic, in that case, serving a standard live streams becomes much simpler because after that, we will have the capabilities to cache a couple of things at the CDN level itself. And after that, your scaling capabilities increases infinitely. So in terms of what you're working on now and some challenges you might be facing in the future, what are you and your colleagues thinking about? One of the challenges we have been working on was like a strategy for zero downtime while service migration. As I explained, one of the pattern we implemented from migrating from Node.js to Golang-based services. But even in that pattern, we had the challenges. So we are still kind of figuring out, okay, how do we still ensure that we can migrate any of our legacy system without downtime? Another thing, another strategy we have been working on, basically, our multi-region strategy. I'm not sure if I told you that currently we use Elasticsearch as our most of our data store capabilities. And till today, actually not like till last month, I think AWS did not have any capability to replicate the Elasticsearch data to different region or different cluster. And because of that, we had very limited options when it came to serve traffic from different regions because you don't have your data store replication enabled on fly. AWS has recently announced they have the cross-clustering replication enabled. So this is one of the things we are going to implement as part of our multi-region strategy. So pretty much interesting topic on this thing and looking forward to implement it. Well, Amit, thanks again for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much. It was fun to talk with you.